Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and today is February 2nd, 2020. But this program is being pre-recorded for a future and hopefully near future edition of Christagenia Saturdays. It has been many months since we have spoken to our good friend Donald Fox, and we have both had busy and even rather tumultuous lives since we did our last End Times update in October of 2018. Now Don is here with us once again, and he is going to discuss all of the rumors and reports that we've been hearing of states or movements that that want states to succeed from the union and counties or cities which have threatened or expressed a serious desire to succeed from their respective states. And how that phenomenon, as it is mentioned more and more frequently in the mainstream media, reflects the trend towards ideological and political balkanization in America. Hello, Don. Thank you for being here. It's good to have you. Thank you for having me, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Um, Good afternoon, or whatever time people may listen to this. Um, It's good to be back on the show. Um, You had your hurricane. Um, I had some other events in my life that kind of knocked me off the air for a minute, but uh, I'm happy to be able to do the show today, and hopefully people can... uh, they'll have a better understanding of the world going on around them as we uh, head into uncertain and tumultuous times. Yeah, that's the way the, um, the, the nation seems to be headed. There's no doubt. It, it's going to get, politically especially, it's going to get more and more tumultuous. That the, um, This election might be something to look forward to, but the 2024 election, I think, is, is wow. That might be civil war too. We'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I think between now and 2024, we could see this country start to break apart. Um, you know, obviously no, none of us can predict the future, exactly how this is all going to play out, but we can certainly spot the trends that are going on around us. And with an eye at scripture, we can try to decipher these events and kind of find out, you know, where we are on this, on this roadmap. Well, well, that's what we, we should be all about in Christian identity. I mean, being a League of the South member myself, succession is our primary worldly goal. And being an identity Christian, we should all anticipate the fall of Babylon and I believe that succession, that the objective of succession helps us to realize or would be the realization of the beginning of the fall of Babylon. So to me, the two ideas are hand in hand and one complements the other. Yeah, th- that's exactly how I see it. I see this um, and we'll we'll break this down in greater detail, but... I see this as 
you know, counties and states breaking away from the union, and then that will cause Babylon to fall. And, and even if it's people that so are that's, absolutely contrary to our own political views, like California or New York City, they're breaking apart or, or endeavoring to break away from the union or from their own state. That assists our cause. Yeah, as they... Uh... They desire, a, you know, to live under a different system of government than we do. And that that's really what's all that's necessary is they don't want to live with us and we don't want to live with them. Absolutely. And, and that was the, um, the the cause of the war of northern aggression, which is often mistermed the civil war. That was the cause of it in the first place. The, the north was dominating the south economically. And, and the South wanted its own self-determination and, and economic independence. It didn't want to be a slave to the North, which it has become ever since. I have a, um, this is a brief and incomplete history of succession in America, because this idea is a very old idea. It's not new at all. It wasn't even new with the, 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 War of Northern Aggression. I, I hate to call it the Civil War because that's simply a misnomer. It's simply not true that it was a Civil War. I should consider this brief and incomplete history of succession in America as, as a work in progress and one day aspire to develop it more fully. That this is, um, it, it could be a lot more complete. But there's just certain ideas that I want to convey that I think are important to this, to this subject. The idea of a part of a state breaking off from another part of a state is not unique in American history. Vermont was formed from counties which succeeded from New York in 1777. Until then, Vermont was just another part of New York. Maine succeeded from Massachusetts in 1819. Until then, it was just a part of Massachusetts, even though there was no contiguous land connection because New Hampshire was in the way. Maine was a part of Massachusetts and succeeded in 1819 and was admitted to the Union as a state in 1820. And this is partly why there are only 13 original colonies, but those 13 colonies ultimately made 16 of our current states. When the Constitution was written, Article 4, Section 3 states that new states may be admitted by the Congress into this union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction, in other words, in the middle, of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states, states plural. That's a key word there. Without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned as well as of the Congress, this language does not explicitly preclude the possibility of forming a new state from a part of a single state. So Maine and West Virginia were both broken off from their original states 
after the Constitution was ratified. The Division of Maine did have the ultimate but reluctant approval of the Massachusetts legislature. But the Division of West Virginia was a treasonous act, and it, and, and it was part of the aggression of the Union against the state of Virginia. In 1863, local Wheeling, West Virginia politicians had colluded with the government of the North to stage a vote and break the western counties of Virginia into a new state. Many people whose sympathies were with the cause of the Confederacy would not participate in that election. They would not vote because they did not recognize the United States government. While federal troops had also driven many pro-Confederates out of their homes before the election. So the validity of the election itself is highly questionable. It's water under the bridge now, maybe 150 years later, but it's a highly questionable act. After Abraham Lincoln secured the Republican nomination for a second term in 1864. He accepted the resignation of Salmon Chase. Now, I would love to be able to prove that Chase is a crypto Jew, but I can't. All signs are that his genetic origin is in Scotland with the British and and the Scots, Scotland and Wales. But Salmon Chase was his treasury secretary, and he actually tried to resign several times earlier. Chase belonged to, and, and Lincoln wouldn't accept his first few resignations, Chase belonged to a radical, ring, radical wing of the Republican Party, and he had been a challenger in the 1860 election. But while Lincoln did not want opposition in 1864, he nevertheless had to appease Chase's constituency within the party. So Lincoln then nominated Chase as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and he took office the same month in December of 1864. Salmon Chase may have done more damage as Chief Justice to our cause than he ever could have as president. One of his first acts was to admit a Negro lawyer to practice before the Supreme Court. He had already made dishonest and hypocritical arguments against slavery earlier in his career. In 1869, Chase presented a ruling in a case known as Texas versus White in which he employed the Perpetual Union Clause in the Articles of Confederation in order to declare the succession of any state to be illegal or unlawful under the Constitution. Where the U.S. Constitution had declared the will to, to form a more perfect union, in the Constitution, that union was not deemed perpetual. But in a twist of words, Chase 
insisted that the phrase more perfect union meant to convey what had been expressed only in the Articles of Confederation, which the Constitution replaced. They certainly do not. They certainly do not represent that idea, as James Madison's words prove. And James Madison, having been credited with writing at least much of the Constitution, certainly understood his own intentions and those of the other founders. But the decision presented by Chase had a five to three majority, and I don't think the subject was ever revisited by the Supreme Court, although it is clearly flawed. In Federalist Paper Number 40, written in January of 1788, James Madison, the so-called father of the Constitution, wrote of the Articles of Confederation and the perpetual union that they formed, and then in relation to what he called the fundamental principles of the Confederation, he asked the question, what are these principles? Do they require that in the establishment of the Constitution, the state should be regarded as distinct and independent sovereigns? To that, Madison supplied his own answer. He said, they are so regarded by the Constitution proposed. Now, it was proposed because this was six months before the new Constitution was ratified. And Madison was certainly not ignorant of the fact that the Constitution did not include the phrase perpetual union. That's why Madison was writing that Federalist paper. He was in support of the independence and sovereignty of the states against the perpetual union of the Articles of Confederation. But there is a long-running argument in early political literature over which came first, the union or the states. And it is reflected in writings as late as John Quincy Adams' famous speech on the Jubilee of the Constitution in 1826. No, I'm sorry. I think it was after 1836 he wrote this. And although John Quincy Adams, who was also a president, although he was a Federalist, he acknowledged the sovereignty of the states, but he considered it a curse while he considered the Constitution a blessing. Adams did concede that the Union under the Articles of Confederation was the, the perpetual Union under the Articles of Confederation was spontaneous, unstipulated, and un premeditated, that's how he described it, and as a result, the states had, in the Constitution, relaxed their union into a league of friendship between sovereign and independent states. While I have not read all of the literature of the period, it seems that 
as they embarked on their campaign of aggression against the South, elements within the Yankee government never considered the possibility, or they purposely ignored, the fact that the word perpetual was purposely left out of a document which was created to replace and not to augment the Articles of Confederation. So Salmon Chase was absolutely dishonest to cite the Articles of Confederation as if they actually had any effect or force in the law when they certainly did not, they were replaced by the Constitution. Like Madison, neither did Thomas Jefferson imagine that the Constitution created a perpetual union. Madison became president of the union, which, which he himself helped to create in 1809. In 1816, near the end of Madison's second term, Jefferson wrote a letter to William Crawford, who was the Secretary of War, and he said, In your letter to Fisk, you have fairly stated the alternatives between which we are to choose. One, licentious commerce and gambling speculations for a few. Jefferson correctly saw the artificial corporations and the engagement in stock trade for in, in corporate stock as he saw that as licentious commerce and gambling speculation, which it is when you buy a share of stock, you're gambling. So he offered two choices, which evidently Crawford had offered in his letter to this gentleman named Fisk. And Jefferson says, you have fairly stated the alternatives which between which we are to choose. Licentious commerce and gambling speculations for a few with eternal war for the many. Or the second choice, restricted commerce, peace, and steady occupations for all. Jefferson understood that was the choice which laid before the young country after the War of 1812. Then he said to Crawford, if any state in the Union will declare that it prefers separation with the first alternative, meaning that if any state wanted to go on with licentious commerce and gambling speculations, to a continuance in union without it, because Jefferson saw that the government and the way that the founding documents were, writ were written would exclude that. He said, I have no hesitation in saying, let us separate. In other words, New York and, and Massachusetts should have gone their own way at that time. And then he said, I would rather the states should withdraw, which are for unlimited commerce and war, and confederate, meaning that Jefferson would rather confederate, with those alone which are for peace and agriculture. 
Jefferson's words are profound because ever since the southern states first attempted to secede from the Union so that they could be left alone and at peace with their agriculture, we have suffered under the first condition which he named, which is licentious commerce and gambling speculations for a few with eternal war for the many. The devices of dishonest men like Salmon Chase have caused us all to become subject to the tyranny of the American empire initiated by Abraham Lincoln. And that's as much as I can say about that this afternoon. Okay, yeah, that was an excellent uh, summation of uh, secession in the United States, Bill. And I guess, though, so the, the question is, so how does that relate to us, you know, events from 1790 to 1860? How does that relate to us today in uh, the current uh, environment? Um, okay, so what my, my thought was, okay, so what's really driving the political divisions in this country today? Well, obviously, it's racial. Um, it's, it's the immigration problem. And it's demographics. Um, as demographics shift, uh, the politics in this country are getting more and more polarized. Um, so just to kind of, you know, give folks an update on what's going on around the world and, you know, the general non-white invasion and the consequences thereof, I, I thought we'd first just briefly touch on, on South Africa. Uh, so what happened to them? Um, there's a story on... Uh, Paul Kersey's blog, um, he writes on unz.com slash sbpdl, stuff black people don't like. Uh, You can look him up. He had a post on January 21st, um, 26 years after the fall of apartheid and implementation of black rule, South Africa experiencing nationwide blackouts as electricity grid collapses. Uh, and he, he goes on to say that uh, uh, it's 26 years after the fall of apartheid in South Africa and the implementation of black rule, a nation truly proving democracy is nothing more than a racial headcount. We get the consequences of a people rejecting whites and mistakenly believing they can maintain the civilization and infrastructure they have inherited. And he, uh, he references an article from... Uh, mybroadband.co.za.com from January 13th, 2020. And it says, ESCOM was forced to implement stage six load shedding in December, its worst ever blackout, sending the country into a panic as not many people were aware of what that stage actually meant for them. Municipalities too were caught off guard with Johannesburg electricity distributor City Power saying at the time that They had no load shedding schedule for stage six. The year is 2020 and generation and maintenance challenges continue to mount at the state company, which generates 96% of South Africa's electricity. As a result, all municipalities have been advised to adjust their load shedding schedule up to stage eight. The Buffalo City Municipality said in a statement on Saturday, uh, January 11th. With each stage representing a curtailment of 5% of the national load, 
Stage eight will equate to a 40% to 40% of the load being shed, the municipality said. Under the previous load shedding schedule, four stages were implemented between 1,000 megawatts and 4,000 megawatts of the national load shed, with stage four being the worst possible outcome for South African consumers. Stage four will typically result in consumers being without power for a total of 24 hours spread out over four days, or a total of 48 hours over eight days. However, ESCOM has since revised its schedule to include up to eight different stages and as much as 8,000 megawatts shed from the national grid. During, eight stage, uh, during stage eight load shedding, consumers could be without power for 48 hours over four days or 96 hours in eight days. Prepare for the worst. As municipalities prepare for the logistics of stage eight load shedding, an energy expert warned that South Africans should prepare for the worst. Regular stage six load shedding and 10 hour daily blackouts. EE Business Intelligence MD uh, Chris Yellen said that ESCOM's declining energy availability factor, EAF, is a cause for serious concern. The energy availability factor shows the percentage of ESCOM's generation capacity which is available, taking into account the planned maintenance and unplanned breakdowns. Yellen said the EAF data for 2019 paints a grim picture of aging, under-maintained, and stressed power plants. The EAF for the full 2019 calendar is at a new record low of 67% availability compared to the EAF of 72% for the 2018 calendar year said Yelland. He added that EAF for week 50 and 51 of 2019 also hit a record all-time lows of 59.7 and 58% respectively. Setting an aging fleet that requires higher levels of maintenance, ESCOM has warned that the power system remains vulnerable and volatile and that getting back to stability will take some time. And uh, Kirsty goes on to say that uh, one score on less than a decade after implementation of black wool in South Africa, the nation is advancing toward de-electrification. What a way to prepare to kick off Black History Month in the USA with such electric news. Wakanda, as we all know, isn't real. Neither can Western civilization or the advancements in technology by whites in South Africa be either maintained or even kept alive by a nation powered by the mandate of black economic empowerment. B-E-E. Remember, democracy is just a racial headcount, and though white people built South Africa, a nation once built boasting of nuclear weapons and the first heart transplant surgery, now the black-run nation is fueled by the black economic empowerment, which mandates affirmative action on behalf of the nearly 91% black residents of the nation. Discrimination to benefit the majority at the expense of the white uh, minority and the nation's electrical grid. Well, well, under democratic rule here in America, blacks are economically empowered purposely, and, and Republicans are responsible for this too. I'm not speaking about the Democratic Party per se, but blacks are economically empowered, and we get stung, and, and we will be stung badly, B-E-E. Um, our own, our own cities, all of our black cities here in America, Detroit, 
Chicago, um, Atlanta, all the infrastructure it is in the same shape that it is in in South Africa, and the the more whites become a minority, we're going to follow that same path. It's inevitable. It has to happen. It might take 10 or 20 years or 50, but it's going to happen. So what do we do now to secure for our children any sort of posterity? I, I mean, as identity Christians, we know that we can't do much, but this is going to happen. And the only question we should ask or wonder is how bad things are going to get before we ever repent so that they can get better. So we're headed in the same direction, there's no doubt. And and sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that I have electricity at all. Well, that's it. In, in 2020, you can't take electricity for granted anymore. Uh, 30 years ago, growing up, everybody thought, well, yeah, electricity is just a given. You know, but not so much as as non-whites gain a larger and larger share of the population in this country. The infrastructure is going to buckle and it's going to fail. Um, it, you know, in Austin, Texas, about a year and a half ago, we had the boil water notice where they couldn't maintain clean water, and you know they blamed a storm and you know some heavy rain and you know a lot of silt went into the system yada yada but it, it's basically a third world septic water system so that's that's where we're headed um and this this is what's going to drive the balkanization of the united states in in the 2020s is is the racial angle um Back in the 1800s, the country was 90 plus percent white. There were different things going on. But today we're going to see it. it, it Balkanization is going to be driven by an attempt to maintain civilization, white Christian civilization. And, well, that's why a study of that the American Civil War is important to understand the conditions we live on today because in in that Civil War or that War of Northern Aggression, blacks were forced onto the white people of the South as quote-unquote equal citizens. And that's why the white people of the South were um, so so ready to fight that war because they didn't want that forced on them by the North. They didn't want to be ruled over by the Northerners who did not have to live with those niggers. Most Northerners before the American Civil War had probably never even seen a Negro. And, and we're, we're still suffering with the results of that today. We're still under Reconstruction today in the South. And it's not going to end. It's not going to end yeah, until the last white man is dead or we have complete balkanization and, and whites actually engage in the struggle for their own survival it's not going to ch stop we know what's going to happen yeah, the, the from period a after perspective the... from a biblical perspective oh. but today we're we're looking at this from from a um a, a political and social perspective which which is important in in order to fulfill the 
prophecies which the Bible informs us should be our objective. Correct. Yeah, I, I like to refer to the, you know, or the period we're in now is deconstruction, is what I would say. After post-Civil War, you know, air quotes, that was reconstruction. Well, we're now, with this non-white invasion, with Gog and Magog, we're in a period of deconstruction, which is what's going on in South Africa. It's becoming de-electrified, you know. Um, well, and right, on most, the on that whites, front, um, I just wanted to. Most whites don't realize it. Oh, go ahead. Most whites don't realize it, and and they're living in a reconstructed mentality that they've been programmed by the federal government. Even down south, most whites have accepted their programming. So even though the society around them is decaying, they haven't even realized that, and haven't really. You can't realize the causes until you realize there's a problem i'm sorry no you're, you're absolutely right and um so the the africans were forced on us back in the 1600s 1700s 1800s the slave ship the slave trade you know as we covered in a, in a previous show was basically all jewish jews owned most of the slaves jews ran the they owned the ships that brought them here all the slave auctions recognized Jewish holidays. The slave trade was part and parcel. It was all Jews. Um, so today, we don't have Africans being shipped over here in chains. Uh, we've got a flood of people really from all over the, the planet. It's not just Mexico or Central America uh, that are coming in here today. Um, there's a story on Breitbart from January 30th and the, uh, the headline reads, Migrants from 41 nations apprehended in Texas near border since new fiscal year. Hmm. Uh, border patrol agents in the Del Rio and El Paso sectors continue to apprehend migrants, air quotes, from a wide variety of nations after they illegally crossed the border from Mexico. The Del Rio sector reports the apprehension of migrants from 41 countries like Brazil, Haiti, and China since the new fiscal year began on October 1, 2019. The Del Rio sector continues to arrest individuals from around the world. Del Rio sector chief patrol agent Raul L. Ortiz said in a written statement, so far this year, the men and women of Del Rio sector have arrested people from 41 different countries. Del Rio sector has coordinated with the local hospitals and contract medical professionals to be prepared to process and manage these detainees safely. On January 28th, Del Rio sector agents from multiple stations apprehended 17 Haitian migrants, 17 from Honduras, and three from Brazil. Two days earlier, agents arrested a Chinese national after he attempted to run from a vehicle that led agents on a pursuit. Over the weekend, agents disrupted 10 human smuggling attempts and arrested 11 human smugglers and 33 migrants from Ecuador, China, Guatemala, and Mexico. Officials state that since October 1, Del Rio sector agents apprehended more than 130 migrants from Brazil, more than 700 Haitians, more than 3,500 Hondurans, and 30 people from China. To put that in perspective, during fiscal year 2019, Del Rio sector agents only apprehended six Chinese nationals for the entire year. Elsewhere along the Texas border with Mexico, El Paso sector agents apprehended 
a Cuban migrant on July 24th who jumped out of a vehicle being pursued by law enforcement in the El Paso area. The Chinese illegal alien attempted to hide in a residence. Agents patrolling near uh, Fabens, Texas, arrested a group of people after they illegally crossed the border into the U.S. After searching the crossing area, agents arrested four people attempting to hide in heavy brush, according to the El Paso sector officials. The agents found the migrants and placed them under arrest. They identified two as Mexican nationals, and the two presented Turkish passports, officials stated. The agents transported the four migrants to the Clint Border Patrol Station for processing. Human smugglers continue to show disregard for the safety and well-being of the people they are smuggling, the El Paso sector officials said in a written statement. On many occasions, the smuggling attempts involve life-threatening methods. On January 21, Laredo sector agents found a group of 63 migrants locked inside a tractor trailer. Those arrested include migrants from Brazil, China, Ecuador, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico, and Nicaragua. And the story was written by Bob Price. He serves as an associate editor and senior political news contributor for Breitbart, Texas, border team. I'm willing to bet, thinking about that, thinking about everything you just said, thinking about the numbers and, and the Chinese coming in through the southern border, I'm willing to bet that the fact that there's Chinese sneaking in through the Mexican border, that that is um, a, a diversion. Because I, I, I have a hunch, and I can't prove it, except to drive up and down the highways here in the south or, or go to places where I know that they're concentrated. I have a hunch that there's probably millions of Chinese illegal immigrants already in America and that the media and the government haven't even raised it as an issue, but they know it. I have a hunch they know it. There are so many Chinese here in America in places that I would never imagine seeing a Chinaman. And these aren't Chinese who are assimilated into our culture through Chinatown in, in the major cities like New York, Philly, Chicago, San Francisco. These are Chinese that are just off the boat. And they're all over the South. Yeah, I mean, they're they're coming from everywhere. Um, and, and, you know, a topic not for today, but, you know, perhaps another day we'll 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 touch on. Well, how are they? How is what's the mechanism? What's what's driving all? How, how are these people getting here? These these people that are uh, um, with no visible means of support. How are they making the journey from Africa, from South Asia, from China, from Ecuador? How are they getting how are they paying the smugglers and getting in here? Well, it turns out there's a, a big uh, international finance movement, you know, called microfinance that allegedly is supposed to start. Um, it's to give out small loans for these people to start small businesses, you know, in the third world to, you know, empower the third world. But what they're really doing is they're taking the loans and they're coming here. Um, we'll, we'll, perhaps dive deeper into that on a future show. Uh, but the key term to look out for is microfinance. So when you see that, then that's typically how these people are able to, to, to pay the smugglers and get here. 
who would want to start a business in, in the middle of some shithole country in Africa when you know as soon as you build up any inventory or, or succeed in that business, all the other niggers are going to rob you? Why, why would you want to start a business there? <laughs> that makes no sense at all. Right. So, yeah, if you're if you're a person of if you have some sort of wherewithal in Africa, what are you going to do exactly? What, what's the logical choice? You know, that, that this is how they're getting here. So some of them, it takes multiple attempts to get in, but a lot of them finally do make it. They got some of them have been arrested three, four or five times, but then they eventually get in. And if they can get a job paying 12, 15 bucks an hour, uh, they can pay off the microfinance loans. And then they end up sending a lot of the money back to whatever country they came from. You know, it's all a big, vicious, you know, Jewish financial scheme. You know, the, the profits for the microfinance people are just massive. Um, even with the high default rate on these loans, um, they're still making enormous amounts of money. That's why um, there's a lot of big name people that are involved in this. And, uh, We'll do a we'll do a breakdown on that perhaps in, in a future show, but that's that's what's that's what's driving this thing, you know, in a on the ground perspective is where are they getting the money to come here. Well, I used to think what, what is it some are a bunch of rabbis flying around in helicopters throwing out dollar bills. No, they're, they're these microfinance loan companies are moving into all these countries, and that, that's how this is getting done. Um, and there, there's so many of them coming. Oh, go ahead. That, that's, a, that's the fulfillment of uh, Ezekiel chapter 38. Once you understand all the, prop, all, all the parties involved in, in the prophecies in Scripture, Yahweh God says, and, and I will put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army. And, and he's not talking about a military army. He's talking about all of these hordes that are going to overrun the camp of the saints in the times of the end. They have no choice but to come here. They're being dragged here, and they will be dragged here if they refuse to come here. But they're coming here for a different purpose than the purpose that international Jewry has in mind and the international corporations which want them here. Correct. Yeah, and... yeah. You know, I've, we talked about that on a previous show, the, the hooks in thy jaws. Um, and that started with the African slave trade. But, yeah, it's, it's going on today. And it's it's so prevalent. Uh, there's a, I found another story on Breitbart um, back from this was on May 20th, 2019. Uh, the headline is Central American towns empty as migrants rush to U.S. border loopholes. Uh, Guatemala's towns are emptying out as a growing number of migrants head north to accept the Democratic Party's offer of open borders, loopholes, and low-wage jobs, say a growing number of local reports. Roughly 1% of Guatemala's population has migrated to the United States border since September of 2018. 1%, according to the Department of Homeland Security. That adds up to roughly 170,000 migrants. And roughly one-third of those migrants come from the neighboring rural districts of, um, I cannot pronounce this, uh, Utentangano and uh, San Marcos. Uh, the result of this U.S. government policies is that 
Many villages are with empty homes, fatherless families, absent men, and minimal investment. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported um, from uh, Colin Tan Tangano, uh, Guatemala. Uh, Gloria Velasquez is, is used to saying goodbye. Four of her six siblings have migrated to the U.S., and she, too, is thinking about heading north with her nine-year-old daughter. Uh, Ms. Velasquez uh, said that her four siblings are in the U.S., and the U.S. are encouraging her to join them. Her daughter, Helen, uh, likes to teach uh, language and mathematics to fellow children. She wants to learn English and become a teacher. I'm a bit scared about going after hearing all the news about the suffering of migrants at the border, but it's my daughter's greatest dream, uh, Ms. Velasquez said. This massive loss of young people minimizes the opposition to the country's weak government and deters foreign investment in the nation. Without the promise of foreign investment and new jobs in the nation's main cities, the next cohort of young men rationally look north for jobs. Santa Rosa fits uh, the DHS statistics perfectly. Uh, this is a May 17th report from Sarah Carter. Under the headline, Guatemalan Ghost Towns, Carter wrote, After nearly a two-hour ride up a windy mountain road from the capital, the sound of salsa music greeted our SUV as it pulled alongside one of the main roads. The music wafted from a small makeshift cafe that was empty of both customers and workers. No cars, few people, two dogs. It was for the most part a ghost town. I can say roughly 60% of this town is gone, said Jose Manuel, who had spent his day sitting alongside the curb in front of the furniture repair shop. Many more migrants are preparing to travel north through Mexico and accept the Democrats' invitation of legal loopholes in the border fence. A recent survey by the U.S. and Guatemalans show that roughly one million Guatemalans, plus many of their children, want to make the trip soon. Um, entire communities are losing their children and their future to migration, said a report from the nonprofit Pulitzer Center. The report delicately dances around the reality that progressive Democrats and judges offer the catch and release loopholes to the migrants who bring their children. So many migrants bring their children and working age youth um, on a dangerous trip to the border. Um, and uh, they, they quote another uh, uh, part here. Uh, amidst the chaos of third graders getting ready for uh, recess, a small empty desk stands out. The child who used to sit there is gone, having left for the United States with his father. In another classroom, four girls work together to fix their costumes for the school's carnival. The rest of their ninth grade class has dropped out. Some go to the U.S., others because their families couldn't afford school any longer. In a neighboring town, a teacher gardens to empower young women after the village's only secondary program closed due to a lack of students. Some of these villages are losing their future as the younger generation heads north. Many of those who stay behind face a heavier workload and they need to care for younger siblings and tend to the house while their mothers work in the fields or fetch wood, tasks that typically belong to their husbands. Um, so it goes, it just kind of goes on to state, you know, how many, how many ghost towns are there are in Guatemala now? Well, well, this isn't you know, the huge cause of, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. I, I was just, this, this isn't the cause of succession. Not, not, 
that that um it but it it's not the cause of balkanization but it certainly is a um indirect catalyst for balkanization the argument over the immigration debate but i'm sorry if right, i well i think with, prematurely with, oh go ahead okay so i guess my my point here was that uh as as these these towns the gog and magog invasion is emptying out towns in central america it's bringing people from china asia india all over the place and as they settle here you know jefferson talked about the fact that blacks and whites could not live under the same government right and we know you know from our identity christian perspective we know that whites cannot live under the same government as non-whites so as more non-whites flood in, the more trouble the current government's going to have trying to maintain the social order. And it's it's getting difficult because the Second Amendment works if you've got a 95% white country. Um, but if you have South Side Chicago where it's 80 plus percent black, um, what you get then is a bloodbath. Absolutely. That they, that they kill each other. But empty villages in, in um, you said El Salvador and Honduras. Guatemala is what they were talking about here. But, yeah, I'm sure it's going on in, in El Salvador and um, Nicaragua as well. Incredible. Okay, that, that's, it, it's worse than I envisioned it. I, I mean, that, than I envisioned it. I knew that a lot of these people pouring over the Mexican border were actually from places further in Central America, but... It, it sounds worse than I envisioned it, or I should say, better yeah, it, than I envisioned it. It, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, it, it paints a no. I mean, it, it paints a pretty stark picture of of what's going on. How many of these people are coming in, in to flood the camp of the saints? Absolutely, and and I'm seeing this in some mainstream sources, mainstream news sources, or or um, news sources other than just the typical right-wing sources which are often dismissed by the rest of the media that this this story that you're that this account that you're giving is is in more mainstream news sources so it, it's basically even um even worse than i think most people imagine worse than i imagined the extent yeah and uh the extent of the illegal immigration yeah, it's 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 a lot worse than than the official numbers uh, will tell. Oh, there's 22 million illegals in the country. You know, what a load of horseshit that is. I mean, it's it's probably more like 60 million or 70 million. Somebody somewhere knows what the real number is, um, and it's not 22 million. That's that's ridiculous. Well, I tend to agree. I tend to agree just from from. Looking at demographics figures on, on Wikipedia and then traveling the country and looking at the demographics I could see with my own eyes. And it's two different stories. There's no doubt. The U.S. Census does not um, reflect the reality of the situation we face. And, and I think that the immigration problem is a cause, it is a serious catalyst for balkanization. But we have um, 
succession right. stories in New York, in California. What we have all of these cities that have declared themselves safe havens for illegal immigrants in defiance of federal law. That that's sort of like an unofficial succession. That they seceded from from the law of, of that that the Congress passes or that the nation has has put on its books they've succeeded seceded from that by declaring themselves illegal immigrant safe havens or, or undocumented worker havens right and right so what is a sanctuary city or state county whatever it's it's saying hey we we are not going to recognize the federal government laws on immigration here we are going to openly uh subvert the federal authority over immigration. We are going to have our own immigration policy in this area. We are not going to obey the law. And that's a form of secession, even though it's not secession in name. Yeah, correct. Like, you know, Austin is a sanctuary city. Okay, Austin is still part of the United States. They just don't follow all the rules and the laws of the United States. We... Our police department does not recognize ICE detainers, you know, as though that's some virtuous policy where what, what, what it really means is death, destruction, uh, lowering of wages, uh, infrastructure getting corrupted, you know, basically chaos and mayhem. And communism. I, I mean, the idea itself is communistic. I mean, it's straight out of the protocols. We support communism. Basically, it is. It, it is straight out of the protocols, and it's communistic. The people that are making those pronouncements are basically declaring themselves to be communists. Well, and, and that's what's coming. Um, I just briefly wanted, before we dive headlong into uh, Second Amendment sanctuary uh, topics and, and current day secession, I just wanted to briefly kind of touch on the the, the goings on with Trump. Um, first, I wanted to uh, touch on uh, the border wall. Just give a quick update on that. Again, another story on Breitbart here from uh, uh, January thirteenth, twenty twenty. They quote the Washington Post. So it says Washington Post: Donald Trump will transfer seven point two billion for border wall. Um, President Donald Trump. Uh, Neil Monroe wrote the story. Um, President Donald Trump will transfer another $7.2 billion from Pentagon accounts in 2020 to build the promised border wall, according to the Washington Post. The paper reported on January 13th that the president would use his national emergency powers to divert an additional $7.2 billion in Pentagon funding for border wall construction this year five times what Congress authorized him to spend on a project in the 2020, according to internal planning figures obtained by the Washington Post. The Pentagon funds would be extracted for the second year in a row for military construction projects and counter-narcotics funding. The plans, the funding would give the government enough money to, uh, to complete a total of approximately 85 miles of new fencing by the spring of 2022, far more than the 509 miles the administration is slated for the U.S. border with Mexico. The spending transfer, if not blocked by Congress or the courts, would bump up his border wall spending to $18.4 billion. 
So far, Trump's deputies have built a little over 100 miles of upgraded wall system and are in the process of planning and building another 350 miles. Chad Wolf, the acting chief of the Department of Homeland Security, admitted last week that the agency will not meet the president's target of 450 miles by election day. I can tell you right now that we remain confident that we are on track to reach 400 or 450 miles that are either completed or under construction by the end of 2020, Wolf told attendees at a January 10th press conference in Yuma, Arizona. Pro-migration groups, including advocates for cheap labor, are funding lawsuits to block Trump's border policies. But a federal appeals court released $3.6 billion in, in border wall funding on January 8th that had been blocked by a lawsuit. The Fifth U.S. Circuit, Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans lifted the curbs while the Department of Justice prepares to appeal to a lower appeal a lower court, a lower judge's decision to block the spending because of the lawsuit. Officials say the border wall helps agents reduce illegal migration and shrink the transfer of drugs into America's communities and young people. So uh, Trump is is getting the wall built. He's got he's got to fight tooth and nail uh, for every every inch of the wall, but it's going up. But how effective that would um, be in, in keeping undocumented immigrants out is still another story. I mean, that's yet to be seen. Right. I mean, is it going to be 100 percent effective? Well, no. But what what symbolically what 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 the wall does is it says hey, this 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 group of people, you know, in Central America, Mexico or Brazil, whatever, they don't belong with our group of people, which is white Americans, which is a form of balkanization. Well, well, right, but the, Trump's also setting a precedent where the Democrat who replaces him, whether it be in, in one year or in five from now, the Democrat that replaces him can simply do the same thing and divert funds from, from other executive branches and simply leave the gates unmanned. Well, yeah, they could have done that anyway, though. So the Democrats could have done the same thing Trump is doing. Trump was like, well, you can't worry about a future president. You, you got to do something now. So your choice is to either sit there and let the flood continue or try to slow it down. And uh, I I think the wall is getting built because it's supposed to be built. Now, is the, is the invasion stopped? No, not yet. But... Um, it, it's, it's twofold. It's signaling that a, you know, your people don't belong here with my people and B, there's a certain amount of political will on our side to try to stop it. Um, which I think the, the border wall is really the thing that's driving this impeachment, uh, craze. And, uh, I just wanted to touch on that real quick and then we're going to get into the the Second Amendment sanctuary uh, deal, and uh, you know, impeachment for the most part, you know, from our CI perspective, well, you know, we understand that there's not going to be you know, a political solution per se, um, 
but what it does is it's kind of a sign of the times. Um, what, what matters to us is that the impeachment is basically a Jewish operation. You know, who's, who's running this impeachment process? Well, Schiff, Nadler, uh, Schumer, you know, these guys have been, you know, front and center stage on this. And, uh, um, so the, it's been one of the terms for it has been called a juku. Um, I, I prefer to call it a Jude ta, but you know, take your pick. Um, so Rick Wiles is a conservative, uh, uh, Christian and he's, he's not a CI guy, but, uh, he's getting closer to our point of view and he's drawn the ire of the ADL. Uh, Rick, Rick has a fairly substantial reach, um, so he's got a uh, the ADL. Uh, our friends over there did a uh, a blog post on him. Uh, it says updated January thirteenth, twenty twenty. Update on January thirteenth, twenty twenty. True news announced that PayPal, as well as the donor management companies Bloomberg and Spreadly, has stopped processing their donations. So they're going after Rick. Well, why would they do that? Um, well, True News is a fundamentalist Christian streaming news and opinion platform that has increasingly featured anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist content and has long been uh, disseminating radical Islamophobic and anti-LGBTQ messages. Uh, founded in 1999 by Rick Wiles uh, and affiliated with Flowing Streams Church in Vero Beach, Florida, where Wiles is a senior pastor. Um Uh, True News programming generally consists of Rick Wiles and one or more of his cohorts or guests praying, reading biblical passages, and discussing current events while talking breathlessly about the end times and asking for money. Um, So Rick has uh, drawn the ire of the Jews here. He he got their attention. Um, In the first few months of 2019, Rick Wiles and his cohorts began taking an increasingly extreme anti-Semitic and conspiratorial anti-Zionist position. They have obliterated the distinction between Israelis, Zionists, and Jews using terms like the Jewish lobby and Israel lobby interchangeably. Uh, They have railed against the old, evil, wicked Kabbalah wizard rabbis claimed that Jews crucified Jesus 2,000 years ago in order to build a Zionist empire and that Jews are going to kill and persecute Christians in the near future. They also allege that Jews and Zionists control and promote abortion and pornography and have attacked Christian culture. Chuku. Since November 2019, True News has promoted the idea that the impeachment inquiry into the, in the U.S. House of Representatives against President Trump is part of a Juku to overthrow the constitutionally elected president of the United States and install a Jewish cabal which will control the country. In one of his first broadcasts on the topic, Rick Wiles warned that if that happened, Jews would conduct a purge and kill millions of Christians. He also tweeted that Jewish socialist Jerry Nadler's Judiciary Committee escalated the Jew coup and warned that the U.S. is in grave danger of civil war as a result. Well, well, that's, and he goes on to... I, I sympathize with the people ahead. of True News. I, I sympathize with the people of True News, but... You know, PayPal and, and all the other platforms have deplatformed me for, for the same reasons. 
four years ago. So I, I was first deplatformed by PayPal. I'm sorry, three years ago in in the spring of 2017. Christianity was deplatformed by PayPal, and and also by a lot of the alternatives, like Patreon. So and PayPal has also. Um, I lost my CD vendor when PayPal basically told them that they would drop them if they didn't drop me. And that was two years ago. I just don't have the deep pockets to hire lawyers. I, I can't afford it. I can't afford a lawyer to go after PayPal, and I can't afford to take the time to do it myself. So I, I publish it on my website, and, and nobody steps up to help. I mean, I don't think there are lawyers out there just waiting for for a, to launch a lawsuit on behalf of a obscure Christian identity website. So True News can get more press about it because they have a more mainstream um, Judeo-Christian face. Yeah, correct. Um, so just you know, in the in the in our from our perspective, you know, what Trump is is basically a buffer. Uh, between us and a Bolshevik takeover, um, I, I think what's what's really going on is the Jews don't think anybody can defeat Trump in 2020, so they're going to try to impeach him, and that seems to be failing. Um, even though they didn't, they weren't big on Bernie Sanders. He seems to be gaining steam now, and his campaign, I think, represents modern Bolshevism. So if if Trump were to go down in flames, um, which after, you know, this week's events with the Senate voting to not hear from more witnesses or documents and just put the thing to a vote, it's going to end in Trump getting acquitted and most likely winning the 2020 election. Um, If behind the scenes people thought Trump had no chance to win in 2020, they would go ahead and pull the plug on him now. Um. So where does that leave us? Um, so it looks like we've got Trump, you know, love him or hate him, uh, for probably another four-year term. Um, so he's, I view him as a guy that's trying to keep the country from, from completely splitting apart. Now, obviously, he's not going to be able to do that, you know, long term. But, you know, in the short term, he might be able to hold things together for another you know, three, four, five years, whatever. Well, it, it, it's another reflection of the balkanization of, of the, the um, constituencies, even within parties in this country, when a president like Trump, who is such a friend to international Jewry and to the state of Israel in Palestine, can be attacked by Jews that Satan's house is also divided against itself, which is definitely going to help us see this struggle through. I have no doubt if Satan's house is divided against itself, then how can his house stand? That there's a, a lot more grave consequences to this um, idea of e- illegal immigrant safe havens or sanctuary cities, as they're called, and what's going on in, in, in America today with, especially in New York City, and, and I believe that New Jersey is going to follow suit. 
I, I think you, you, I know that you can talk about that. I think that that's important to talk about before we move on to the Second Amendment issue. Um, okay, are you talking about uh, counties from New York leaving? Well, well, no, but to go to Pennsylvania. Sanctuary policies have um, oh. basically come to the forefront recently. Oh yeah, with oh yeah, with uh, uh, New York City is now giving illegal immigrants or migrants uh, driver's licenses. So they're going to be not only are they getting driver's licenses, they're going to be able to vote. Um, so the big finance, you know, big capital wants these guys. You know the, the 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 migrants. They want them in here, a to vote for leftist policies, to drive down wages, and to depose white men from ruling this country. That's what's fueling the the immigration. And uh, New York and New Jersey are now completely on board with open borders. Well, well, right. I mean, de Blasio, this mayor of New York City, it is he basically wants open borders. He's defending illegal immigrants. He He's refusing to honor ICE detainers and, and letting people go. Immigration and Customs Enforcement recently published a list of the people that they wanted New York to detain, whom they consider fugitives, and published a list of the people that New York City let go not honoring their detainers. So it, it's it's uh, a pretty bold move on, on the part of New York City to actually defy all of these federal agencies and defy them openly in favor of these undocumented immigrants, right? And, and that that is um, also helping to assist the problems that the rest of New York State has with New York City. And, and there's several um, groups in New York who, who push this idea of succession, e- secession, even to split New York into three different states or, or three different um, separate governmental entities, at least. Not saying that they would be accepted as states simply because they desired to secede from New York City or vice versa. So... That this this secession thing in the north is is um, being spoken of, spoken about more and more frequently, in relation to New York City and to Long Island and Rockland and Westchester counties, which surround New York City, and and upstate New York itself. Yeah, the uh, in Illinois they're they're trying to to get Chicago out of the state of Illinois. Um, they've had bills on that for years and years they just never went anywhere um but you know perhaps this this might stuff like that might be gaining more traction um there's more and more separatist movements kind of sprouting up all over this country and um what caught my eye is and if, if you want to get into the second amendment thing i think now would be a good time um is the the whole virginia situation um you know, I started hearing about this in December with, uh, you know, the, the, the Democrat-controlled, well, basically communist-controlled uh, state government in Richmond. Um, Soros and, and other uh, Jews had spent a lot of money to get some anti-gun people elected in Virginia, and they were able to get that done. Um, 
and gun control, gun confiscation was one of their main issues that they ran on. And um, I read Paul Kersey's blog, if not every day, you know, several times a week. And back on December 18th, uh, the story caught my eye on, uh, again, on Paul Kersey, uh, uh, unz.com um, slash SPBDL. Um, this is back on December 18th. Um, uh, he's got a post. Uh, in face of Democrat Party tyranny, 90% of Virginia counties become Second Amendment slash gun sanctuaries. These counties are overwhelmingly white. And he's, uh, he starts uh, off with, uh, it's always been about disarming white Americans. That's the end goal of gun control pushed by the Democrat Party and aided by non-white legal immigration and illegal and the monolithic black vote. Um, the real story of the move for making the Second Amendment sanctuaries uh, across Virginia after gun confiscation was threatened by the incoming Democrat-controlled government is the overall whiteness of the movement. 90% of Virginia's counties have become gun sanctuaries in the past month and a half. So in six weeks, 90% of Virginia counties became Second Amendment sanctuaries. And the correlation to the defense of this freedom is whiteness and being removed from Northern Virginia where white liberals are working for the federal government and massive non-white growth slash legal immigrants have turned the area blue. Um, um, uprising, 90% uh, of Virginia counties become gun sanctuaries, expanding the movement to nine states. And he, he's referencing a story from uh, the Washington Examiner on uh, December 18th, 2019. Um, and that, that article states, uh, stirred awake by Democrat uh, Democratic proposals to take, register, and possibly seize their legally obtained weapons, Virginia gun owners in just 43 days have pushed 90% of the state's counties to become gun sanctuaries. Uh, the latest three on Monday night. Um, since the November 5th election that gave Democrats control of uh, Richmond and organic, and they put that in quotes, pro-gun movement has prompted the governments of 86 of Virginia's 95 counties, as well as 15 towns and cities to adopt some type of sanctuary language putting Governor Ralph Northam and other liberals on notice that their gun control plans aren't welcome. I did not think that, uh, if I have a number, said uh, Sanctuary Advocate and Culpeper County Sheriff uh, Scott Jenkins. It's an organic thing that just took off after Election Day. Elections have consequences, and this is the result. This has truly rocked the conservative libertarian group's core. It has really shook a lot of them awake. They are fully awake, uh, he told Secrets. Um, remarkably, the effort has not seen a big push from the National Rifle Association. Local groups, notably the Virginia Citizens Defense League, have led the campaign that has brought thousands of gun rights advocates to county board meetings. It has also become the national model for the movement that has now reached Illinois, Washington, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, New Jersey, Florida, and Tennessee. Illinois is credited with starting the movement. What's happening is Virginia is becoming a national story and model, said Cam Edwards, editor of Bearing Arms and a national authority on gun laws. Late Monday, three counties in Virginia, Stafford, Prince Edward, and York, and the towns of, and the town of Vinton joined the effort. 
The language adopted in the movement uses words such as Second Amendment sanctuary and constitutional and signals that police will not enforce the anti-gun laws. Proposals before the Virginia legislature include gun bans, gun registration, expanded background checks, and limits on the size of magazines that hold cartridges. Uh, proponents warn, however, that the resolutions do not provide legal protection against gun control measures. Jenkins said that uh, Richmond should instead enforce the laws already on the books to target criminals, not those who use their weapons legally. Um, but uh, this is, and then uh, Kirstie goes on to state, um, white people want the freedom of self-defense and the ability to have firearms. Democrats rely on the monolithic black vote and the importance of non-white legal immigrants to nullify white conservative votes. Blacks are more likely to commit gun crime in Virginia at a rate of 7.89 times that of whites. And in some cities, gun violence um, is, exists as a social problem because black people can't stop shooting one another. But white gun owners are too afraid of being called racist to admit the racial reality of gun violence in Virginia and the use of this data in a responsible manner when crafting social policy. It doesn't matter. The push for the Second Amendment slash gun sanctuaries across Virginia is entirely racially driven by whites implicitly defending their rights as a collective, while the Democrats move to confiscate slash register firearms in an explicit attempt to disarm law-abiding white people. What I think is, um, is funny is that one of the counties which hasn't become a Second Amendment sanctuary in Virginia is Charlottesville, Albemarle County, which is where Charlottesville is. <laughs> Well, I, I've heard that I've heard Charlottesville is controlled by a, a cabal of nasty folks that are basically either Jews or Shabbos goys. Right, Charlottesville's loaded with Jewish carpetbaggers from the north. It, it's the seat of the um, University of Virginia, and it's become a hotbed of of communism. In, in the middle of the state. It's incredible. It, it's the cultural differences when, when you leave Charlottesville and go to places like um, Lexington or Stanton are incredible. And I'm afraid that some of Charlottesville is spilling over into those nearby cities. Yeah, so what, what's going on here is, just to kind of sum this whole thing up, um, so the government in Richmond is getting you know, hostile and nasty to the white native population. So in response to that, they're declaring themselves to be Second Amendment sanctuaries. So they're saying, hey, um, we're, we're not going, to, we're going to disregard your crazy gun confiscation scheme. So they're, they're openly defying the, the government in Richmond, just as the, the, the sanctuary immigration cities defy the national government. And, and that's, that's a, a growing trend. Like you said, it, it, it was um, spilling over into other states. In Florida, that there was some legislation that didn't really look like it was going anywhere, some anti-gun legislation um, late last year, I believe. And following the pattern in Virginia, I'd say probably about 15 counties so far in Florida have declared themselves to be Second Amendment sanctuaries. And, and this has also taken off in Illinois, Kentucky, um, 
Tennessee, North Carolina, even counties in Maryland, and a couple in New York, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. So, so, and, and many in Texas, and there's a few in Mississippi. And out west, that there are um, huge areas formed by Second Amendment sanctuary counties in, in um, Kansas, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon, but, but <clears throat> not in most of the other states. There's a few in Arizona that not in most of the other states don't have any declared Second Amendment sanctuaries so far as of January 29th. And, and that includes Montana, the Dakotas, um, Nebraska, and, and Utah, which is surprising. <laughs> California is not surprising. No, I, I, I did not see any of this coming. Um, I didn't think that any of this was going to happen at all. But the fact that it's going on as much as it is, like, yeah, like you, you had mentioned North Carolina. I had just seen a story a couple of days ago that they're now getting sanctuary counties. So it, it in you know, looking at the Virginia situation, which I didn't see coming at all. I didn't, I wasn't, you know, there's no way I would have been able to predict this was happening. So, um, it, it took me by surprise. I was, uh, you know, I had looked up and like, wow, in six weeks, 90% of the counties in Virginia have declared themselves to be two way sanctuaries. Um, so what's the next logical step with that? Then if that big of a chunk of the state can't get along with, with the state capital, then, you know, what's, what's the solution, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, Stalinist purge, a crackdown, or do the counties leave? And uh, this brings us to uh, uh, Delegate Gary Howell in West Virginia. Um, he's brought forth a, uh, uh, a resolution, House Concurrent Resolution Number 8, um, that's going to offer these counties the chance to secede from Virginia into West Virginia. And again, I, I first saw this on uh, uh, Paul Kersey's blog. You know, a lot of other people are uh, writing about this now as well. But uh, he had a post back on January 15th, uh, 2020. And it says, West Virginia, one of America's whitest states, offers overwhelmingly white Virginia counties declaring themselves Second Amendment sanctuaries the opportunity for secession from the multiculturally dominated Northern Virginia state. And that headline pretty well sums it up. Um, and then it, it goes on to read uh, uh, House, Concurrent Resolution, uh, House Concurrent Resolution Number 8, um, where they're basically talking about having an election um, in these various counties, and if they want to secede, then there'll be another election in West Virginia, and they could become West Virginia counties Um by 2021. So um, I think now would be a good time to play that clip uh, from, from represent or delegate Gary Howell. And Gary Howell is a, a delegate. Um, okay. So yeah. So like, uh, you know, here in Texas or formerly Minnesota, there were like state representatives. He's called a delegate. Okay. So this guy is a lawmaker from West Virginia. This okay, isn't great. some uh, uh, conspiracy theorist. 
this guy actually works in the West Virginia government. Right. I just wanted to clarify that. That's all. Getting that out there before we hear it. Yep. It, yep. it might give people a greater interest in actually listening to it. So here it is. Strap yourselves in. Get ready for a very, very interesting conversation with West Virginia Delegate Gary Howell. Well, Delegate Howell, thank you so much for coming to the program, sir. It's a real pleasure talking with you. Hey, it's great to be on there. Thanks for having me. Uh, you bet. I, I got to say, I was fascinated when I uh, first learned about this resolution that uh, you and some of your colleagues have offered up in West Virginia, uh, uh, basically inviting counties and cities and towns in the state of Virginia to 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 leave and to uh, be annexed by West Virginia if 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 and there's one big caveat here if the Virginia General Assembly were to allow that to happen. Uh, yeah, I mean. It, it, it's a heavy lift, uh, but uh, could it happen? I think it's a long shot, but uh, we needed to make the offer. Uh, you know, 156 years ago, we were formed out of the state of uh, Virginia. Uh, and in fact, Frederick County, Virginia, uh, has a uh, the ability to leave the state now if they wish, uh, because they were already, already authorized by the uh, Virginia legislature to leave. They just never acted on it, and there was no end date on it. Uh, we all learn about that in West Virginia history growing up here. So, you know, that was kind of the pattern. So, okay, let's give the other counties the opportunity. Uh, obviously, you know, 156 years ago, Richmond uh, wouldn't listen to us, so our ancestors were there, and now we see Richmond not listening to the rest of Virginia. I, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I did not grow up in Virginia, so I didn't take Virginia history, but I did not know that Frederick County has the ability to leave the state, and I wonder how many Frederick County residents are aware of that as well. Well, yeah, and the interesting thing, it was actually Berkeley County, Jefferson County, and Frederick County, Virginia were given the option to join the state of West Virginia, and two of them exercised that option. The third one did not. <laughs> and so that's still on the table. Well, they may be changing their minds here before long. Uh, so, you know, again, you say this is a heavy lift. I, I doubt the General Assembly is going to allow, let's say, all 91 uh, of Virginia's Second Amendment sanctuary counties to, to become part of West Virginia because... You know, that, that would leave a very small state of Virginia. Uh, and, and I don't think they're willing to give us up, Delegate. I think they just want to exercise control uh, over the residents of the state of Virginia. And I, and I think you're right on that. Uh, but, you know, at some point they have to look at the advantages uh, of letting them go. Uh, you know, they get uh, a super majority in their House and Senate to do what they want. Uh, they no longer have these guys that are a, a, a pain to them. Uh, you know, we get them, and, and they're more like us. If you look at, uh, uh, you know, the Shenandoah Valley, the Blue Ridge, and probably the western half of Southside Virginia, they're more, they have more in common, uh, whether it be demographics, geographics, or economics, with West Virginia than they do the, uh, the remainder of Virginia. Uh, at what point do these arbitrary lines we've drawn on a map uh, no longer make sense and we move them? And that's kind of the way we see it. They don't make sense anymore. So come on over, join us. <laughs> so under this resolution, which how many sponsors does this have now? Uh, people keep adding on to it. Uh, you know, we have tripartisan support. It's Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. Uh, people keep coming into my office, hey, can I sign on to the resolution? And since it's already introduced, we have a process and I have to, they fill out a form, and I have to sign off on it. Then, uh, but they keep coming in. Somewhere it's in the 30s right now, and about a hundred member, hundred member legislature. Okay, so do you anticipate this actually coming up for a vote? Uh, I believe it will come up for a vote. Uh, you know, we've got most of our leadership 
in the House is on it. Uh, you know, one of the big uh, pushers of it is uh, our majority leader. Uh, you know, she keeps saying, let's get this thing out, let's get it over to the Senate so they can run it. Wow. Uh, we have the Senate resolution on our side. Uh, we've already passed it out of committee, so uh, we're about to run it here, too. Oh, so there's a there's a concurrent resolution from the Senate uh, that, that would offer of the, uh, the the same opportunity for these counties. Well, the Senate version is uh, for Frederick County specific. Specifically, okay, okay. Yeah. And our version is for the rest of the county. Okay. Well, listen, the more the merrier. I mean, if the Senate's going to, you know, say, come on over Frederick County, you might as well open it up to the rest of the state. Uh, and, and, and so if this were to be approved under the terms of the legislation that I read or the, or the resolution that I read, uh, counties that wish to leave the state of Virginia and be annexed by the state of West Virginia would have to hold a, a referendum by, was it August the 1st of 2020? Is that correct? Well, there's two kind paths of two mechanisms. That, yeah, right. Well, the first path is by August first, and the reason that number is in there under our state laws that is the last day we can change the ballot for the November election. So it would have to be put on the ballot for the November election. After that, if anybody decides to come in, then uh, it would trigger the governor calling a special election, so we could have a special election for that. And we've left it open ended, so they can come at any time in the future. So, so, uh, but again, uh, with, with the approval of the Virginia General Assembly, uh, let, let's just, you know, hypothesize that they, that they gave that approval. They said, ah, we, we, we're all right, we're done with you recalcitrant counties. Uh, a, a, a county were to uh, vote, let's say, Augusta County uh, holds a referendum July 4th. I think July 4th, by the way, would be a really good day to hold referendums uh, on this uh, issue. Uh, and, and, and voters were to approve that. Then you're saying that West Virginia voters would have to accept uh, the the uh, Augusta County into the state, right? So there'd be another referendum for West Virginia voters. That is correct, and that would uh, if they did it by passed it on July fourth. That's before the August first deadline. It would automatically be put on our general election ballot in November, and if approved by the voters of West Virginia, uh, they would be admitted to the state. Now at that point, we would have to do we would call a special session of the legislature, mm-hmm. uh, decide exactly how that's going to happen. Uh, we've actually thought this through a little bit. Uh, at that point, we would say, all right, we're going to prepare for you to come in, but you're not officially going to come in until June 20th, 2021. The reason we picked June 20th is that's our birth date as a state. <laughs> I love the fact that you guys are actually having discussions about this. I mean, you're taking this seriously. We're taking this very seriously, and we've actually talked with our counterparts in Virginia on this. Uh, and uh, they've asked us some of these questions that so we've been trying to come up with the answers. You know, how would our road system be integrated? Uh, you know, how our, our universities and colleges, how would they be, inter- you know, the employees? You know, we'd even look at on, uh, you know, we would have to pay Virginia for the constructors and everything they've built in the part that comes over, which is what happened 156 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we'd have to bond out money to take over that portion of the debt. Uh, and with the revenue from the new counties and what our current debt load is, that really shouldn't be a problem for us. Have you spoken with any of your Democratic counterparts in the state of Virginia about this? Not in the uh, uh, not in Virginia. We have not. But it's my understanding that some of uh, the Republicans are talking to them. So, okay. Uh, but the interesting thing, uh, one of the emails we got from a, a gentleman in Yorktown, Virginia, he had actually suggested if the legislature will not. Uh, uh, allow them to hold the vote to leave in the individual counties. The actual counties could sue in federal court for the right to self-determination to hold the vote. And I had never thought about that. Hmm. I hadn't either. And I'm not an attorney, so I, 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 I don't know one way or the other how valid an argument that is, but that, that's worth exploring. We're, yeah, I gotta tell you, Doug, we are certainly living in interesting times, are we not? 
We are. And, uh, you know, and like I said, there are arbitrary lines on the map. And, you know, since the founding of the nation, uh, you know, economics, you know, demographics have changed. And maybe it's time we look at changing the map. I mean, is it, you know, does Western, does Pennsylvania make the same offer to Western New York? Does Indiana make the same offer to Southern Illinois? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Southern Illinois and Indiana probably have more in common uh, than they do with Chicago. Uh, a, a, it's a time to look at redrawing the maps uh, to make this, uh, you know, give people the, the freedoms that they want and the people that want more government, let them have their more government. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we redraw congressional districts and, and, and you know, state delegate districts every 10 years. Uh, what, what, you know, the idea of redrawing these uh, state boundaries. And, and you're right. I mean, it seems to me like probably the biggest objection at this point uh, given the, the fractious nature of American politics at, at, at this moment in time, probably the biggest issue would be, all right, well, who's going to, as you say, you got to pay for all of the improvements that we've made. Uh, does Virginia Tech become West Virginia Tech? What do you do to their football program? I mean, you know, it, it, it seems like it would be like the nuts and bolts. I think probably at that 50,000-foot level, you'd probably find a lot of support for people saying, yeah, that might actually improve things if we're not at each other's throats all of the time. Absolutely. I mean, that's the way we look at it. Uh, you know, with the, the governor of Virginia, uh, you know, I think he's crazy. You know, his followers probably think he's sane, and we're the crazy ones. But, you know, with the way he's been pushing the rhetoric uh, and, you know, what's going on uh, Monday with the uh, rally at the Capitol and him saying no firearms and violating the Second Amendment, you know, at some point, does some wacko on either side do something? And we don't, nobody wants that to happen. Yeah. But we live in a nation where we said, let's vote. You know, we have a republic, and we elect our representatives. Let the representatives say, hey, maybe it's time we move the border. Let's do it peacefully. Let's hold a vote. That's where our country was founded. Let's, let's make that happen. Farmville, West Virginia. I kind of like the sound of that. Uh, a delegate, Hal, thank you so much, sir, for coming on the program. Hopefully we can uh, have you back on again very soon. I uh, look forward to it anytime. All right. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, Delegate Gary Howell joining us here on Bearing Arms, Kevin. Okay. Virginia Virginia is sort of peculiar because in Virginia there are 38 cities which are independent cities, and not all of them are, are san- Second Amendment sanctuaries. So 90% of the counties it, is a high number, but it's not quite representative of what's going on. Um, Arlington, Alexandria, Norfolk, Virginia, Virginia Beach, Virginia, um, they are all independent cities which are not Second Amendment sanctuaries. Charlottesville is actually an independent city. Um, Roanoke is an independent city. Roanoke County is a Second Amendment sanctuary, but the city of of Roanoke is not. So there's some weird stuff going on there as far as um, Virginia being almost like balkanized internally because most of those cities have quite a different makeup than the surrounding counties. Yeah, I, I think, you know, yeah, there's going to be some kinks to be worked out of you know, who goes when. But I, I think, you know, from our perspective, you know, from a, from a CI perspective, 
if even you know, like they say, the, the one county has already been authorized by the Virginia legislature to move. You know, they just have to vote on it and approve it, and then West Virginia has to accept them, which they will. Um, if, if if even one county makes the jump from Virginia to West Virginia, you know, I see that as starting a chain reaction. You know, if one of them goes, then a bunch of them are going to go. And I, I think eventually what this is going to lead to is, you know, a big chunk of Virginia is going to, is going to balkanize from Northern Virginia. Well, I mean, the, we the can hope government, that. we should hope that, that that happens. So, yeah, I mean, Gary Hall is a, is a very well-spoken level-headed guy who's an actual lawmaker in West Virginia. You know, this, this guy isn't just, uh, you know, some uh, wild-eyed conspiracy theorist with a podcast. You know, no, he's he's an actual uh, lawmaker, and and he's got they've got as you, as you can hear, they're already they're already working on plans to integrate the road system, the college system. You know, who gets you know whether they're going to rename the colleges or you know employees. You know, how does their tenure work and 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 stuff like that. They're already. A fair ways down the road. This is a lot farther down the road than than you know I had imagined. Um, so I guess my point is I didn't see any of this coming, and it's already a fair, uh, you know, a, a good chunk down the road. And you know, two or three days ago, I saw the headline that the the governor in West Virginia is now openly inviting these counties to join West Virginia. Well, well, why wouldn't they want to augment their own state and and its economic? economic um ability and capacity because west virginia is a it is a pretty poor state for the most part but which is how um jewish carpetbaggers have been able to take over its governor's office for lengthy periods of time <laughs> that there was actually a dupont that was governor of west virginia i believe in in rather recent history he, he basically well, well, just yeah purchase the, the governor's office. Sure. And I'm not very familiar with the current governor of West Virginia. You know, I, and I had just heard of Gary Howell, you know, I hadn't heard of him until a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm, I'm not real, he sounds like a Republican to me. Um, but, but I'm not real familiar with, you know, West Virginia or Virginia politics, I guess from our perspective is again, it's just saying that this group of people here isn't really compatible with this group of people over there. And even though they're within the same state and Gary's like, well, these counties in, in, in Virginia, they're more like us, you know, demographics, economics, yada, yada. So well, wait, what do you mean? What are you saying there, Gary? Um, the multicultural Northern Virginia doesn't have anything in common with rural white Virginia or West Virginia. And that we need to redraw the lines on the map and we can just do this peacefully. We'll all take a vote and, and and uh, everyone's going to be happy, right? Uh, well, no. Um, I, I see this as the, you know, I've I read uh, balkanization stuff. Um, it's been a topic for going on 20 years with, with the United States. Uh, the Russian KGB guy had an article oh, about 20 years ago depicting, you know, the United States is going to balkanize into separate countries. And I always kind of wondered, I'm like, well, yeah, maybe that's true, but 
what, what what's the what's the mechanics of this? How does this actually happen? Are states just going to up and decide one day that hey, we're going to be a new country? No, I I think now that we're into 2020, and after listening to the the Gary Howell interview, I think the way this works is counties are going to secede from states and join other states, and then um, eventually these these states will probably secede from the national union. Well, well, and I the, see that the as secession itself is put in front of the American public, especially the white American public, of course. The more the idea of secession itself is put in front of them, the more conditioned they become to the possibility of secession and the greater the chances that secession will succeed. Correct. Yeah, I, I exactly. Once this starts, it's going to be like wildfire. I think. I, I think that, you know, the, uh, um, you know, I sent over a graph that uh, shows how how the how the various congresses have been voting over the last fifty years, and the left and right are now farther apart than ever. Um, so politically, more we're more polarized now than we've ever been, um, and obviously the most unifying thing for a group of people is race. And so since we're not, we're not a homogenous white nation anymore, um, we're a multicultural, you know, basic shithole. Um, the polarization is only going to get worse. As more people flood in non-whites, as more non-whites flood in, the more polarizing things are going to get. I mean, Central America's basically moved in already. There isn't much left to come, you know, India, China, they're all, I mean, they're all coming here and it, it's going to fracture things even more. And I, I think once these lines start getting redrawn, things are going to happen fast. Well, I'm, uh, I'm anticipating the start of this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, like with Trump, okay, so the impeachment, it's, it is a Jude Tab, but it, this one isn't going to succeed, you know, like past ones have with, you know, Nixon and Kennedy. Um, but this one, I, I don't think will succeed. But what comes after Trump? That's the that's the, you know, the the, the sixty four thousand dollar question is. Are there going to be enough white people left on a national basis to to vote in a Republican president? Or have the demographics already shifted too much to where that's no longer possible? Um, Trump is in there now, so he's going to enjoy. Um, uh, we heard his campaign manager on on TV the other night talking about how much more money they have, you know, in the campaign war chest than they did, you know, in the 2016 election. So it's possible that while Trump may lose a couple states here and there that he won in 2016. He may win other states that he did not win. So it's it's all the other possible Trump gets reelected in 2020. I think that's more likely than not. So he can maintain maybe a status quo for a few years. But then what comes next? Um, Bernie Sanders, this is going to be his last election. Joe Biden, this is his last election. Trump, it's his last election. Um, who are we going to get next? You know, it, it's probably going to be um, a communist would be my guess. And that's only going to fuel the urge to secede even more. Well, we have this, this, um, probably the last two 
classes of voters coming into the in, into the voter registrations. When I say that, I mean the last eight years worth of kids coming into the voter registration are, are almost completely inculcated with communism. These schools have basically, in, in, in their teachings, especially not, not only the universities, especially universities, but colleges and high schools ha have become absolutely amenable to, to teaching communism to children in, in everything but name only, right? All these kids coming out of these schools today are Marxists. And they have no concept right. so, of the of, of the danger that of the ground that they're treading. They have no concept of the danger yeah, of Marxism. And the concept right. so, of Marxism. So how does how does one defend himself from a, a communist or Bolshevik takeover of the national government? Um, you know, and that, and that leads me back to uh, back to Matthew. Um, Matthew uh, chapter 24, uh, verse 21. This is the King James Version. Uh, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor shall ever be. Uh, verse 22. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. No, There should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days have, shall be shortened. Um. So in practical terms, then, how does flesh or, i.e., you know, white people, how can you save any white people? Um, so the sheep must be separated from the goats. Um, the, the sheep have no ability to separate themselves from the goats, but the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So I think this, what, this movement we're seeing with, with two-way sanctuary and secession I think this is an ongoing process now of separating the sheep from the goats. This is like step one. We're in the early stages of step one. And um, so how do you save flesh? It, it, it's, it's balkanization. So scripture describes, you know, like what, what does it talk about? How when you're, when you're compassed about by your enemies, what happens? Well, they devour you. So how do you how are you saved in a temporal sense? Well, you must get away from your enemies and be with your own people. So well, I, I think that's all to come out of Babylon. that's what's coming. That would be the materialization of, of the call to come out of Babylon. If you're a a um, white man in in New Jersey, and and <laughs> this balkanization process occurs, and you're only left with the, the current state of New Jersey and, and perhaps New York City or whatever it is left attached to it, maybe urban Philadelphia or Baltimore or something like that, because Maryland is pretty balkanized already, that then you're screwed. If you're a white man in the middle of Atlanta and Georgia falls apart, you're screwed. And, and Georgia right. is, is also a very... Um, a, a state with drastically divided demographics. Uh, I, I mean, North Georgia is has much more in in common. The people in North Georgia have much more in common with the people in Tennessee that they don't have anything in common with the people in Atlanta. It, they're not even people in Atlanta. <laughs> I don't know how many people are left in Atlanta. 
just a few. <laughs> yeah, from our perspective, not many. Um, so, you know, that, that leads to kind of the, one of my final points here is, yeah, so, yeah, like you said, the guy living in New Jersey, what does he do? The way I look at this is, and I'm starting to see this model now where these big cities end up getting a Jewish mayor. So if you're in one of these big metropolitan, you know, sprawling cities and it's run by a Jewish mayor and you see sanctuary city policies getting enacted and, you know, uh, non-white behavior becoming decriminalized, you know, we're starting to see that now where they're throwing out, you know, parking tickets and, you know, marijuana offenses, all these minor offenses that you know, disproportionately affect people of color. You know, they're they're disregarding those. So what's going on is is a general disregard for law and law and order. That's what's going on. So the, the man of lawlessness, you know, i.e. the Jewish mayor, is being revealed in, in a lot of these cities. So if you find yourself in a in a big city, you know, run by a Jew and catering to non-whites and just disregarding the law and order, you need to start looking for the exit because it's not going to get any better. It's, it's going to get worse. Well, well, right. You're better off selling your home while, while you can still get some money for it moving somewhere else. I agree. That, that should be inevitable right. to, and, you know, to all white people that still have any and any um, sense of sanity and, and respect for their own kind. Right. So, you know, I, you know, again, we can't predict the future here. I don't know how exactly this is all going to play out. You know, what counties make a move into this state or that state, you know, it's just too early to tell, but we'll, we'll see as this, this plays out, I guess, you know, depending on where you are, if, if you're in a, in a white County now, that's in a pro-white state or, you know, relatively speaking, you may be fine just where you're at, you know, but if you're not, you may need to look at, Hey, maybe in the next few years, I might have to pack up and move, you know, um, England had an article that, it, right after that, the, the clip with Gary Howell was recorded. That was on a Friday. The following Monday, there was a gun rally at, in, in, uh, the Capitol in, in Richmond and, England had an article about it, and I, I don't have it here in front of me, but he was he was talking about basically these guys that showed up were fat, and uh, they were holding signs that said they weren't racist, and these guys were basically a joke, and he's like, can we basically just stop all this talk of violent revolution now? And, well, yeah, it, it's never been about white Christian people overthrowing the government. That's not what, you know... Scripture describes what what happens is the system collapses, and I think a large part of that collapse is going to be due to us moving out of it. Well, I mean, if, if let's say New York City secedes from, from the rest yeah, of the it's... country, how does it survive? It 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 has to be artificially propped up by this money from these investment investment bankers and all these Jews that dwell there. And it it can't it it has no agriculture, it has no industry, it has no no um mechanisms even by which to get its own drinking water or or create electricity. 
none of that's in New York City anymore. That stuff all left New York City 100 years ago. It relies on, on the Catskill Mountains for its water supply. It, it relies on um, nuclear power plants upstate and, and in Long Island or, or, or conventional power plants for, for its electricity. It can't survive as a separate, distinct political entity. No, it's it, these large cities like they're all kind of like that, and they're all death traps. Um, the last number I saw, and this was a couple three years ago, I think, New York City is fifteen percent white. So that's the quoted number. So I mean, it, already most of our people have already fled New York City. You know, maybe some of them work there, but they don't live there. Um, you know, when, when New York collapses, it's going to be ugly. Um, when Los Angeles collapses, it's going to be ugly. Houston, Atlanta, all these cities are, are going down at some point or other. You just don't want to be there when the music stops. Well, I, w- I would love to see them yeah, secede. I mean, secede from their states, if not from, from the the federal government as a whole, but I would love to see them also see and be successful with it because they, they right. will I mean, rapidly I think degenerate. It, it, they will rapidly degenerate much more rapidly than, than they are if, if they're part of the greater state. Right. I mean, if you, if you kick off New York city on its own, it's going to be like South Africa. It'll devolve quickly you know, uh, power shedding and, water rationing and you know, all those things will, will come into play. And uh, eventually, so, you know, Revelation talks about, you know, world commerce grinding down to zero. Um, so what would really cause that to happen? What is mystery Babylon? You know, and I've, I've talked about it before. It's the, it's the Jewish economic system, which is based on the U S dollar right now, which is the world reserve currency. So, if the United States, in practical terms, ceases to exist, then the full faith and credit of the United States means nothing, and the dollar will go to nothing, and then world trade will basically go to zero. I think if one state successfully seceded, it, it would cause international Jewry to abandon the dollar and pick up the Chinese yuan. Correct. I mean, or yen, or however they pronounce it. Well... Yeah, and, and China's got its own problems, uh, you know, the coronavirus. Um, Trump's trade policies have uh, put a dent in, in Chinese economic growth. Um, China, you know, they were on course to dominate the world, but now they've taken a step back. And, uh, I, you know, from our perspective, of course, there can't be you know, a big Chinese empire that rules the world. That just isn't going to happen. Um, so when the dollar goes down, that's going to be pretty much it, I think. Well, well, I think that the, as far as international business has faith in the dollar, if California seceded, that that faith would would, would be deprecated to a very great degree. That they have to... Correct, yeah. Them All it's going to take is... They have to kick and scratch and claw to hold it together. Correct. Yeah, it's only going to take one of these uh, one of these blocks to come out for for the whole thing to, uh, um, yeah, like 
at some point, you know, California may may say, well, we're not going to send any more tax money into the federal government. You know, we're not we're going to the money we collect on behalf of the feds. We're just going to keep it to keep this thing going. And it could be something like that. You know, I've heard people talk about that where states will just they may not formally secede, but they will just hey, we're just not buying into your system anymore. We're just going our own way. There may not be a vote or a formal declaration or we're forming a new country and we're going to get, you know, recognized by the UN. They may just say, hey, we're out. Well, well that's what the whole sanctuary state, city yeah. movement is all about anyway. It, it's these cities telling the federal government that we're just not going to pay attention to your laws anymore because we don't like them. Right. If, if, yeah, the onus is going to be put on the Washington, D.C. establishment to enforce the laws. And then is there then the question becomes, is the federal government going to have the resources and the political will to actually enforce it? Well, well then they should have occupied New York City by now, as soon as they started dismissing right. these so, prisoners and, and not honoring these ICE detainers, that they should have already occupied New York City. And arrested his government. Yeah, but they didn't. Right. I mean, I, Trump I, was going to crack down on Chicago. Look at what Washington did to, to a, a bunch of poor country folk that wanted to be left alone with their whiskey. The, the whiskey rebellion. <laughs> he, he waged war over taxing whiskey against his own people. Right. I mean, against his own. Yeah, but there was the political will and resources then to keep everybody in line. Um, that seems to be fading now that we're, you know, the quoted number is like, we're 59% white as a country. And I don't believe that for a minute that, you know, that's why the, I was talking about the, the Guatemala situation. So if, if they're admitting that 1%, 1% of Guatemalans have migrated since September of 2018 in a year, you know, what, how many of them have really made it here? What's the real number? How many from El Salvador? How many from Nicaragua? How many from Mexico? How many from Brazil? How many well, from well, Paraguay? You know, first, Chile. In, in the first place, most Hispanics in the United States are counted as white in crime statistics and Census Bureau figures. They're whites of Hispanic descent. Second, all the Jews and, and all of the other um, marginally white or, or mixed Europeans are counted as white. Arabs are counted as white in the U.S. Census figures. There's no race, Arab. They identify as white or black. So if, if they're saying that the yeah. United States is 59% white, in reality, it's probably 29%. Right. I mean, when I go to the grocery store here in Texas, it is not 60% white. It is not 40% white. You know, it's maybe on a good day, 20% white. And you're like, well, maybe in this neighborhood, it's, you know, a little more, you know, immigrant or Hispanic, you know. No, I've been to, you know, I drive around town quite a bit. I get around and I just go into the local grocery store. I'll go in just to grab like two or three things once in a while just to see what's going on there, you know. How many of the cashiers are white? Oh, not too many of them. How many of the managers running around are white? Well, not very many of them either. How many of the customers are white? You know, 
depending on what time of day you go, you know, you may see a few housewives or retired white people, but you know, you very rarely see, you know, a, a wife, a husband and three kids, three white kids in the grocery store. You just, you don't see it. You know, I, I, I don't stand out there. I'd, I'd love one day to just take the day off and stand in front of the door and just count who's going in and who's going out on a given day just to get a, what's the real number? You know, I would love to do that sometime. I just haven't got around to it. Well, the real number is pretty damn low. <laughs> I would bet. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've joked about that. Of course, they, they would dump me off YouTube, but I, I would love to have a YouTube video that says, where's Whitey? And just stand in front of the grocery store and maybe do a time lapse or something and just count up the numbers, you know, you have a little counter and see what the numbers actually are. Well, okay, in the last 20, you know, we'll see, say that they're not open 24 hours, but say they're open 20 hours. Well, this many white people came and left the grocery store and this many non-whites did. And I bet it would be under 20% here in central Texas. Well, well, that's another problem with white flight. There's a, there's a new sort of white flight where liberals are fleeing from California to escape the hell that they've created there, but they're spreading their disease. Instead of learning from their mistake, they're spreading their disease, and, and that's why the, the city you live in now is like it is. That's why San Antonio is like it is. That's why... Um, Colorado has become a communist state, which was traditionally conservative. Um, that they're spreading their disease to Montana and Idaho. It, it's so. So there's a different kind of white flight that has sort of the opposite effect than what we hope to achieve. And and it's it, it's probably not limited to California. It's probably happened to. Um, in New York and Pennsylvania as well, where that, when whites do flee those places, that they spread their disease elsewhere instead of admitting and, and learning from their mistakes. Yeah, we, we've certainly seen that here in Texas. And, you know, at some point you have to wonder if the, you know, it, the light switch is going to turn on for these people. Hey, wait a minute. You know, everywhere we go and, and we enact these, you know, sanctuary city policies and, you know, welcome refugees and welcome migrants that it doesn't take long for everything to, to go to hell. Um, about you know, I've, ago. I've talked about it before. I mean, you look at pictures of Los I'm sorry. Right. On. I mean, you talk about, you know, yeah. Like, I, I mean, I've seen pictures of Los Angeles from the early 1950s. It was a clean city and it was full of white people. You know, that is not the case now. Windows are all barred up. Um, it's largely, you know, as you call them, Ladinos. You know, they speak Ladino. Yeah. Which is a Jewish version of Spanish, you know. That Arab question show was was phenomenal. Um, I, you know, once you, once you talked about that, I, the, you know, that these, the Central Americans, you know, the Mexicans, they you can you know when you see them day in and day out you can tell they really are a cross between Sephardic Jews and Mayans or Incans or you know whatever. Well, well, a lot of people think I'm crazy for that assertion, but 
I swear it's it's true. It's not entirely true. You can't blanket any any people and and say that the same phenomena has affected every one of them. But it's true to a great degree. Yeah, I would invite anybody that you know disputes that to uh, come with me to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, had, I was going to say I encountered a, a, a man about a month ago who certainly looked white and, and Irish and, and just another average white guy in the street. And he was a Bernie supporter. And he was a Marxist. And, and I tried to explain to him the evils of Marxism and, and somebody like Bernie Sanders. And he, he did not have any of the knowledge necessary to even have a discussion with me. I couldn't have a discussion with him. I could not find a common ground on which to have a discussion with this man. It, it was like talking to somebody from another planet. Yeah, some of our people, like, you know, like you've, you've mentioned in the, the John shows that you've been doing and I'm, I'm just about caught up there i think i'm one show behind um but a lot of this is on a need-to-know basis you know the 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 apostles they didn't get all the knowledge that they would later acquire when you know they spent three years with christ and they still didn't know everything because it wasn't time for them to learn it and i think we're we're in a phase now where you know a lot of our people don't know all this stuff, but I think as time goes on here, more and more of us are going to become aware of this this stuff. It, well, it'll I start to be revealed. It has as, to happen. You know, we're... It has to happen or there's no God and we're all doomed. <laughs> so we may as well <laughs> eat and drink today because tomorrow we may die, as Solomon said. Right, you... Yeah, YOLO. Yeah, you only live once, you know. Um, but as it as the the system is, it, it's it's rickety, you know. It's 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 strained. The political process is more acrimonious than it's ever been. Um, the House Democrats certainly can't get along with Senate Republicans. You know, twenty years ago, you really you couldn't say that, or thirty years ago for sure. But it's certainly the case today. You know, uh, it, it's it's basically an adversarial relationship. You know, I used to joke 25 years ago. You know, we, me and my buddies would talk about politics, and I would say, "Well, it's kind of like frat boys. You know, they're all drinking beer at the same keg. You know, they just have a slightly different take on some of this stuff. But they all got along to get along. But that's no longer the case at all. And uh, the divisions are only going to become more and more pronounced and the system's going to, to, to fraction and break under, you know, as we've talked about with, with the IQ differences, you know, even if you wanted to have a multicultural paradise, you can't do it because the people that are coming in to replace us just aren't physically capable of maintaining the power infrastructure, the sewer system, the, the sanitary water, you know, they just, they can't do it. And it's going to collapse. And that's going to be the end of Mystery Babylon. And Christ commands us to come out of it. And I, I think what that means is when this thing starts to go, you'll need to find a white area and get there. Well, I think it, it's good that 
what we hear um, of the idea of secession in the media in relation to California and more and more um, middle Americans are looking at California as a hostile and alien place, which is good. And there's secession in the news lately um, where Vermont has been named. And, and I think that that's good to have that out there. It, it's that the idea of balkanization is slowly swelling up in in non-white nationalist contexts and that's good for us that's good for for identity christians and it's good for white nationalists southern nationalists especially yeah i mean i yeah from our perspective in order to get out of this mess that we're in that's the path forward now it's not going to be a painless path um as we've seen in south africa as the power grid starts to degrade you know if you're stuck in an area like that it's going to get ugly. There's going to be rioting in the streets. There's going to be, you know, breakdowns. You know, eventually, you know, the EBT cards are going to quit working. Then what's going to happen? You know, um, you're going to have roving packs of of starving non-whites um, going up and down the street, devouring whatever they can get their hands on. Feral apes. Feral apes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's coming, you know, and it's it's a lot closer than people think. You know, now, am I saying the system's going to collapse next week? No. I, you know, if I were to guess, I'd say, you know, it, it it's probably going to be post-Trump when things really get on a slippery slope down. You know, I, I think Trump, you know, you know, like you talked about, yeah, is, is he beholden to international Jewry? Well, of course he is. You know, any president of the United States in this paradigm would be. But even if you go along with the Jewish program, you know, 90%, that's not good enough. And they demand 100% um, uh, compliance or they're going to go all out to destroy you. And that's where we're at with Trump. He complies with their wishes about 90% of the time, but that's just not good enough. They can't abide that. Well, well, I really think, and the more I think about the last 16 years, I really think that Obama was a setup. O Obama, we had eight years of, of um, not too much war, let me put it that way. Not too much war, no new wars, right? Not, not too much war. Obama only um, continued in a low-key sort of way the policies of Bush in, in Iraq. Iraq and Afghanistan, but Obama didn't start war with Iran, which the Jews wanted. So we had eight years of not too much war, no gun control, federal gun control legislation of any significance. And the only really Marxist um, agenda that he did advance was the Obamacare. But everything else was kind of relatively calm in those eight Obama years. So it ain't so bad to have a nigger for president after all. And I think that that's a setup for the next time. I, I really do. We'll see. Right. I mean, he, he made, you know, blacks acceptable on a certain level, especially on the national stage. Well, he was in there and not everything went to hell. But, you know, he also, you know, Bush... 
didn't exactly slam the border shut. But Obama, his immigration policy, you know, he brought us DACA and the Gog and Magog thing increased pretty good under his watch. And uh, the fact well, that right, Trump replaced his, him. His, the official numbers in the Obama administration is still better than Trump's first four years. Yeah, yeah, but there was no, uh, the difference with Trump is he was a white guy saying that we should have a border. You know, just the fact that he was a white man saying that white countries should have borders and not have a, a flood, even that even that rhetoric was enough to, to send the kosher crowd over the edge. Of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, I, I hope we can continue this, um, this conversation maybe next month. Yahweh willing, um, you know, we'll see where things are at. And uh, this is a process, you know, I would just leave people with, uh, you know, so what do I do with all this? Well, I would say, you know, for right now, you know, it depends on your circumstances. You know, you can't just issue blanket advice to everybody. But, you know, probably a, a good bet is, you know, if you if you live downtown in, in some major non-white, you know, city, you may want to start thinking about, okay, how do I get out of this? You know, I would encourage people now, you know, instead of, you know, buying guns or ammo and worrying about, you know, getting into a shooting match with the feds or whoever, you know, get a second job while the economy still functions, you know, say what you will about Trump, but, you know, you can still get a job and maybe two, you know, I would say, you know, knock down any debt you got, uh, get your car fixed up, you know, you're not going to be able to take the city bus to safety in this thing. You know, you're going to need your car running, you know. Well, things are up and running now. Take advantage of the time, you know. Mend, mend fences with with your family, you know. Get yourself healthy, you know. You know, I'm pretty much full carnivore now. Um, work out, you know, and try to make, you know, try to make as much money as you can. You know, so that when the time comes, if you have to move, you can do it. If the money's worth anything. I'm sorry. <laughs> if it's still Right. Worth you know, I, depending on what survivalist you listen to, physical cash may have some value. But, like, if you just have a bank statement, you know, that may not be worth anything, you know. So, you know, like you said, you know, maybe you want to look at selling your house in the next few years and, and, and relocating. You know, I would, I would encourage people to probably think along those lines. Well, well, I'm sure that we we should um at at least make sure that we live in a place where there's enough whites that we can network with and get accustomed to doing things with. That's important. We have to be able to network with like-minded people and get accustomed to participating in activities with those people. It might be a weekly get-together to have a few beers and, and do something other than watch football or, or um, beach outings or, or camping trips or fishing trips or, or anything like that. that. That's where I find a lot of value in the League of the South is it gives us a, a network of other white, like-minded white people who um, gather together and participate in activities together. And, and that's important because you need, we're not going to survive as individuals. You need to network and build your own community within the wider county or city or state where you live. 
And that community is what's going to get you through the difficult times to come when the system, when and if the system does crumble. So that's what's important. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I mean, the system's going down. We just don't know when, you know, and none of us can predict the future. So um, at this time, things are happening a lot faster than I thought they were. You know, if you'd asked me two years ago, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said any of this stuff was coming. The, the but here we are where... I'm sorry. The, the Internet is a great oh. means of communication and sharing information now, but it's not going to save us. We need real-life human networks of like-minded people. Correct. Yep. So, you know, yeah, you have to network with your white brothers and sisters. Okay. I I'm sorry I cut you off what, what you were trying to say. This is... um. Oh, uh, yeah, my last point was, I, I, if you would have asked me a couple of years ago, I, I wouldn't have thought that a, uh, a West Virginia lawmaker would be openly talking about Virginia County seceding into West Virginia. I, I didn't see that coming at all. Um, so things are happening at a pretty rapid clip. So everybody needs to um, kind of stay tuned as to what's going on here. There does seem to be some acceleration, no doubt. Thank you for being here, Don, and, and I hope we have this conversation again or, or extend this conversation again soon. It was great to be here, Bill, and uh, uh, God bless. Wonderful. Praise Yahweh. God bless. <laughs>